Hebrews 7 is our topic. Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 9, according to my notes. Is that correct? Mary, I'll know. I got it. All right. 7 9. Uh, the topic here was the fact that uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Levi is a descendant of Abraham. The one who receives the blessing is greater than the one who gives it. No, it's the other way around. Yeah, it's lesser than the one who gives it. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham paid tithes. So the argument is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Levi is lesser than Abraham because Levi is descended from Abraham. This is all Hebrew thinking. If you didn't understand Jewish thinking, this whole argument wouldn't make any sense because it wouldn't be compelling to most of us because we don't really care who's descended from who and who's lesser and who's greater. But they did. Okay, and he's arguing in a way that the Hebrews can understand. So therefore, therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And the Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And since it says in Psalm 110 and verse 4, that to Messiah, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, Jesus is the great high priest who lives forever, through whom we draw near to God. And then if we go back to the Levitical priesthood, we are sitting. <laughs> because it's been put aside for this priesthood of Jesus, who's after the order of Melchizedek. That is the whole argument in a nutshell. Now let's go down to the details. And so to speak, though Abraham, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Now, we looked up some cross-references last week. How did Levi receive tithes? What was that all about? Right, so the Levitical, Levi and his descendants, because when they divided up the land of Canaan, they did not have a portion. All right? They're, so they were supported by the tithes of the other tribes. And that was not only supported their livelihood, but the whole sacrificial system. But, according to this thinking, Levi paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek, making him lesser. Lonnie, could you look up Genesis 14 and verse 20? Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. There it is. Genesis 14.20. So that's the incident. William Lane says this. Um, here, here it indicates the writer clearly recognizes his statement that Levi had paid a tithe to Melchizedek was not literally true because the, that the moment in primal history when Abraham met Melchizedek, Levi was yet on board. Nevertheless, the statement that Levi had himself paid tithes was true in an important sense, indicated by the expression through Abraham, 
which immediately follows. The corporate solidarity that bound Israel to the patriarch implied that Levi was fully represented in Abraham's action. Therefore, Levi's status to relative to Melchizedek was affected by Abraham's relationship to him. Well, this is going to be our day to study corporate solidarity because the sermon from Matthew 23 is going to rely heavily on that same thinking. And I would go so far as to say if, if, if you can't understand corporate solidarity in Hebrew thinking, you're not going to be able to understand the gospel. It's that important. Let me illustrate why it's so important. It says in Romans chapter 5, in Adam all sinned. All right? And, and you can't understand that if you don't understand Hebrew thinking. And the way we think as Americans is so entirely different that we're not going to accept the guilt of Adam's sin in our minds. You know, unless, unless I was actually in the garden myself and I made my own choices, then how could I be responsible? But that's not how the Hebrews thought. Yes. It's imputed sin according to Romans 5. Now, there are theologians that will go do headstands to try to deny that, but they're arguing futilely and they don't understand the Bible. This thing with Melchizedek is just, in Levi, demonstrates how the Bible presents this sort of thing. And when Adam sinned, he did, it, he did so as our representative head, and the whole human race was accounted sinful. Not that we haven't actually sinned. Yes, we have. We're all sinners by nature Amen. and by practice. Amen. So there's no escape. from the, And so that shows us our need for the gospel. Yes, Steve. Well, then you're part of Adam, and you're also, he's also, it's also legal. It's legal guilt. Now, I remember uh, vividly sitting in Dr. Rakestraw's uh, systematic theology class, probably, I think it was in the spring of 1993, in fact it was, and we were discussing this issue. And I was the only one in this whole class that holds this view that I'm describing now. It just, to me, it just shows bad teaching in the various churches where these people came from that were in the class. And so as we were talking about it, I explained this Jewish concept that in Adam all sin, um, that that was corporate solidarity, that the Jews weren't going to dispute that because they, they also liked the positive side of it being in Abraham. And there was another aspect to it besides just the genetic and the legal. There's also the practical following in it. And so the whatever you do makes yourselves either sons of the devil or sons of God. So it does take into account human behavior. And here's what I said to the, the people who are rejecting it. I said, if you reject the idea that you're accounted sinful but by being in Adam, then according to Paul's reasoning, you're going to also have to reject the idea of being righteous by being in Christ. Because it's based on the same reasoning. And, and, and if it's not fair that I'm a sinner because of Adam, then it's not fair that I'm righteous because of Christ's righteous deed. And what Paul argues is that now by faith you're in Christ, and what Adam did is not in your account, 
nor what you did is not in your account. What's in our account before God is Christ's act of righteousness that is imputed to us. And so they're willing to accept one side of it and reject the other. And I said, you're being inconsistent. Well, they didn't have any more to say. I, did, nobody even tried to, at that point, refute my point. And, and they're missing no point in Romans 5. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah, our sinful nature is genetic. It's, it's both and, not either or. In, in both, uh, see, in the dispute in Romans 5 is with the phrase, and all sinned. All right? In Adam, all sinned. And is it talking about through Adam's one act, which I believe that it is, but then it goes on to describe, and we all actually sin as well in practice. So it's both and. Yeah, it's not anatomical, but it does affect the whole person. And I wouldn't argue. I mean, I, I, I agree. It's just that genetic implies uh, I have no control over it. I'm programmed to sin. Well, you don't have any control over the fact you're born with a sin nature. I, I, I'm not arguing that. <laughs> I agree with the sin nature. I'm just wondering if genetic is a good word to use. Uh, the simple reason that the gays will say that I was born this way. Perhaps there is some genetic thing. Well, only in a broadest sense of, see, I'm going from the universal, that we're all descended from Adam. Now, when it comes down to the particular, that's a whole different argument. That I descended from Adam, Adam means I'm born a sinner. And I'm also legally responsible. He was the federal head of the human race. But the fact that I'm born a sinner doesn't necessarily mean I've got to go out and murder somebody. Or I gotta commit adultery, or you know I'm gonna do this sin rather than that sin, or I'm gonna be worse than other people. You know, that's that's getting down to the particulars of how this is played out on the face of the earth, and we're responsible for everything that we do. I, I understand. Uh, I was, my thinking was that the genetic would say that I just have control over when they get to do it. Well, people will always say that, but it, it's not gonna work when they get on in front of God in judgment. <laughs> Adam said that. The woman that thou gave me, you know, so you wanted to shift the blame. Keith, go ahead and defend yourself. Death entered death entered through sin. You don't have the same nature as Adam. And you also get the idea of the second Adam. The first one became a living soul. The last one, Adam, and for sure he says, became a life-giving spirit. Yes? Yeah, it is instinctual. Um, but let's think about this... Um, Get back to our thinking here. Abraham does an act 
Levi is included in Abraham's act. Is that right? He Abraham paid tithes. Levi's included. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, that's just how the Bible is laid out. I'm saying that analogically, the same idea happens with Adam. Adam doesn't act. We're all included in it. Amen. That's all the point I was trying to make. I'm trying to make that real simple. All right. Because, well, they had this idea in theology called federal headship. That Adam is the federal representative head of the human race and his act is done on behalf of all his descendants. And the flip side of the analogy is that Christ is the federal representative head of another race, of the redeemed, and his one act of righteousness, which was paying for our sins on the cross, we're included in that. So that we're justified through Christ's one act of righteousness by faith. That's the argument of Romans chapter 5. I don't think you can get out of it. We have a radio broadcast on that that explains it. I think Dick and I spent two sessions on this, if not three, going through Romans 5 verse by verse and explaining how this works. It's very important theology. And I think that People are lacking in theological understanding because of not spending their time to dig through like Hebrews 7, Romans 5, and some of these passages where this is all laid out. Because it is clear in the Bible. And some people say, well, this is too difficult. You can't expect people nowadays to have that kind of theological um, acumen to be able to deal with these kind of things. And my response to that is, well, the writers of the Bible thought people in the first century could figure it out. Right? Yeah, right. You know, people that didn't have computers and didn't have electric light bulbs so they could stay up all night studying and didn't have printing presses and didn't even have their own copy of the scroll in their possession. They had to go to synagogue to hear somebody hear, read it to them. If they could understand Hebrews 7 and they could understand Romans 5 because that's to whom it was originally written, who are we in the 21st century to say this is too hard for us? That, uh, that's a pretty lame excuse. Yeah. So they understand it. Well, let's go to uh, Hebrews 7.10. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him, i.e., he wasn't even coming to the scene of history. He was um, someone who would eventually descend from Abraham. So this is the idea of corporate solidarity. My cross-reference is Romans 5.12. So, Dean, could you read it? I, I just alluded to it, Romans 5.12. Yeah. That's the one cross-reference I have to this. Wherefore, as one man, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all men have sinned. Yeah. Amen. In the Adam. So that we have this in the Adam and in Christ thing. Um, you know, I think, frankly, one of the reasons that I was, when I discussed this in that seminary class in 93, the reason I was the only one in that particular class, I met other students later that understood these things, I think the guilt for the corporate ignorance of American evangelicals should be laid at the feet of Charles Finney. 
Charles Finney is the most pernicious and negative influence on Christianity in America in our entire history, in my opinion. And uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I'm very uh, non-opinionated. But Finney wrote a whole theology to deny everything that I'm saying right now. Finney denied the sin nature. He denied the federal headship of Adam. He denied that guilt was imputed to people. And he also denied the imputed righteousness of Christ. He called, he called that legal fiction, which is, which is terminology taken right out of the Council of Trent. And so, uh, Finney was the quintessential American in so many ways. And I'm going to write about this, okay? But Finney, above all American theologians, um, believed in man's ability. He, yeah, he believed in you could be perfect. He believed that by human choices, you could overcome all sin with a little help from God. He believed in what he called dormant moral powers. He said a revival is not a miracle or an act of God. It's just the proper use of means. That the millennium could be created in America by human effort. And so there, there is hardly anybody that believed in the power of man greater than Charles Finney. And the fact he's considered some sort of icon of American evangelism just shows how little we care about theology. I don't know. I mean, he's way before. Well, dormant moral powers. What is Gene. Yes, he invented the altar call and called new measures evangelism back at the time. And he used emotional appeals to try to get people to make a decision, assuming then that their decision was going to be um, efficacious in their own salvation. And so everything from decision theology to the altar call to the ability to believe in man's ability uh, and human powers and the denial that's in nature, all of this can be traced back to Finney. Planned revivals, right, which we have now. Uh, Rick Warren, he's, he's going to, uh, by the way, now he's going to have, after 40 days of purpose, now it's going to be 40 days of community, and he's going to take over more churches, and then he's going to have 40 days of something else. Rick Warren, this, I'm just telling the thesis of this book that I'm supposed to be writing to Dick's very disgusted because I haven't written yet. But, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Get going on this book. But I'm going to trace, I'm going to try to, in this book, trace Rick Warren's phenomena that's going on right now right back to Finney and say we just have another version of this human ability, version of revival. Totally different than the revival in the first great awakening. They didn't believe in human ability. They believed men were the most wretched of sinners. Ben Franklin said concerning Whitfield's preaching, he says, it astounds me. I, read, I was reading his autobiography the other day of Franklin who wasn't a believer, he loved Whitfield, and he kept going to the meetings. He just didn't believe him, but he ended up giving his money to Whitfield, and he still didn't believe him. <laughs> he just thought Whitfield was the most fantastic orator he, ever, orator he ever heard, so he loved to listen to him, even though he didn't believe him. And so he says, it's astounding that all these multitudes come out to hear this preacher, even though he, he's telling them that they're basically half-devils. <laughs> he, he just... <laughs> he's, he's preaching on the sin nature. He, he didn't believe in human ability. Yes. You actually have a case 
Yes, I, I wrote a CIC article called about uh, Finney where I outlined all of these things about his theology. And I wrote a paper for it at Fortis Dr. No, Dr. Travis at, at Bethel Sem, who's a church. And he totally agrees with me about Finney. I don't know. He doesn't agree with me about Warren, but he agrees with me about Finney. Um, he, he thinks I'm being melodramatic or something about Warren. Uh, but uh, I'll make my case. I'll prove it. Yeah, you know, he agrees that I'm right about Finney. <coughs> okay, so we're, in Adam all die. It says in that's in First uh, Corinthians 15, I think 22. So here's corporate solidarity. Abraham does it. All of his posterity are implicated. Now in this case, it was paying tithes. So let's go back to verse. Now let's go back to our argument here, verse 11 of Hebrews 7. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. Parenthetically, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. End of parenthetical comment. What further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Again, very, very subtle but profound logic here. It's, uh, if, if, if then, uh, in logical, the sentential logic, he says, if, let's just assume, if the Levitical thing brought perfection, and that word can be translated fulfillment or completion. So if the Levitical priesthood did everything necessary, and ultimately we'll find out what this is all about is drawing near to God. So if the Levitical priesthood fully brought people into the presence of God and made people right before God, then, if, then, why would there need to be this uh, statement in Psalm 110, verse 4? Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why would that even be in the Bible if you didn't need a Melchizedek priesthood, if you didn't need an eternal priesthood, if all you needed was the Levitical one? That is the essence of the argument that's being put forth here in the book of Hebrews. Okay? So, uh, once you have perfection, you don't need to tinker with it. Maybe say it simply. And, um, yeah, that we say in America, if it's not broke, don't fix it. It's probably going to get worse. <laughs> and um, so we're back to the implication of Psalm 110 and verse 4. Levitical priesthood is a shadow, an anticipation of a greater priesthood, and that that is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Okay, um, Dan, Galatians 2.21 Gene, if you could look up Galatians 4, 9, and Stephan, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. Right. Right. Because the Melchizedek priesthood was never really established. There was one incident with Abraham, and then he disappears from the scene of history. Right, based on one Psalm 110 and verse 4 that comes later. Okay, The whole argument in here is all based on Psalm 110 verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right? Yes.
priest of righteousness, that's what his name means, Jack Cole here, and that he was somehow uh, representing the true God to Abraham, who we look to as great faith. There's something in the economy, my question is similar, there's something in the economy of God when he gave the promises to Abraham later, especially the one with the circumcision, mm -hmm. that altered the economy of the priesthood such that Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't show up again until Psalm 110 and verse four. It, you don't even hear about it, and here it comes back in Psalm 110 verse four and talks about an eternal priesthood. Yeah, amen. Priesthood of every believer. Pete, did you have something? Yeah, amen. It's a foreshadowing. And I love the way God does things. We've been studying Genesis. I'm preaching through Genesis while I'm in the Old Testament. There are all kinds of things that happen in Genesis whose significance don't turn up until many, many, many decades, centuries and millennia later. And it proves the inspiration of Scripture. God doesn't do things by accident. He has a purpose. He has an eternal plan. And he does things and says things in Genesis that are laying down the foundation for everything that's going to happen under the New Covenant. It's all back there. Yes. The Davidic is the kingly line, okay? And so what we're going to see here is that in the Old Covenant, kings couldn't be priests, all right? But in the New Covenant, we have Messiah, who is both priest and king. And that's what makes him superior. He's, he, yeah, the lineage, the, the lineage is traced in Matthew from David to, to makes Jesus legally a viable king after the uh, uh, throne of David. And his, and his priesthood comes from Melchizedek, who has no lineage. So he's priest and king. And it makes him superior to anything in the Old Covenant. There's no priest and king in the Old Covenant. Let's get our cross-references. <laughs> he wanted to be. <laughs> Saul decided to be priest and king, and he got, he got in big trouble too, didn't he? <laughs> Cost him up dearly. Let's get our cross references. Galatian two twenty one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Galatians two twenty one. Uh, Dan, you got it. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Amen. Galatians 4.9, Gene. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Yeah, it's an interesting rebuke. I like the way Paul says that. You've come to know God, or rather be known by God. 
he, he makes a statement and then says, you know, I should emphasize God's activity. <laughs> and uh, interesting verse. And the stoichia is in there. If you go back to the stoichia, that's these beggarly elements. If you go back away from the gospel, you put yourself back under the stoichia. I wrote an article about that in, about, from Colossians. Okay, Stefan, are you ready to do Hebrews 10, 1 through 4? Yeah, the argument there is that because they had to do it over and over and over again, obviously the sacrifice wasn't really taking away sins because they had to keep going back and doing it. Jesus shed his blood once for all to remove sins. There's no further sacrifice. Yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I had never thought of that, but it's true. Yeah, Job does predate Abraham. Yes. Well, uh, I think the, the, the point of assurance that was strongest was probably on the Day of Atonement, because that was the most dramatic day. On the Day of Atonement, when they took the scapegoat, and they went through all of these uh, preparations and to make oneself clean and holy, and the, and the sins were laid on the goat, and he went out in the wilderness, and the high priest <coughs> says in Numbers 15 that God would indeed take, forgive their sins. And when the high priest went in there on that Day of Atonement, and he came back out alive, that was a visual and practical assurance that God had accepted that. Because if God hadn't accepted it, he wouldn't come back out again. Okay? And so they it's not that they had no assurance, but it was certainly not as great as what we have in Christ. But they they understood that God did accept their sacrifice. Well, it, they're forgiven, though. I think there's forgiveness, but it's not exact. It's yeah, somewhat less because it talks about this in Hebrews that um, this inner work of grace under the new covenant is, is, you know, certainly a greater understanding than they had. But 
They had forgiveness, but it's actually argued in the New Testament is through faith also for them. Because they believed. And if they didn't believe this was all right, they wouldn't even bother going through it. It's a lot of work trying to be kosher. Yeah, right. There was still a lack. Obviously, it wasn't the same. Right. Amen. Well, we'll get more of that when we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10, where it really gets into the sacrificial system. Let's go to verse 12 here. First, Hebrews 7, 12. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. <coughs> the law had no provision for a priest from the tribe of Judah. Okay? So, obviously... We aren't under the same law. Jesus couldn't be high priest under the Old Testament law. Yes. Yeah, people are accountable according to the covenant God makes or the, or the light that He's given. And, for example, when I was talking about institution of circumcision in Genesis 17, okay? I preached on that here a few weeks ago. Once that happened, before, there were people circumcised or not circumcised in the ancient world. The practice was known. But there was no particular covenant tied to it. Once God made it clear to Abraham that this was the covenant and this was the requirement of the covenant, from then on, it says that any any descendants of Abraham that refused that would be cut off because they knew better. They knew what was required of them. And then once we come to Sinai and the law is given and the people are made, it's made clear what the terms of that covenant is, at that point, they understood yeah, you can't go do it however you see fit. I wrote a, I just wrote an article about that. Remember the Jeroboam? He didn't think he had to follow all these silly rules, you know? Why can't we have a Baal to represent God? Why can't we worship somewhere else? Why can't we do it our own way? Well, God evidently didn't agree because <laughs> uh, Jeroboam was in big trouble. Yeah. If the priest took him taken so seriously under the law, then why is he taken so lightly under grace? Well, that's something that I think we need to talk about um, and where I'm heading with all this. We need to understand the means of grace that God gives in the Bible. And this ultimately, if you, if you see this phrase that keeps coming up in Hebrews, is all about drawing near to God. All right? That's really what's important. How is it that we can draw near to God? Because we definitely need to. Well, the Bible tells us that you can't draw near to God anyway other than through Jesus Christ. And that we have full access to the throne of grace. That we have a high priest who intercedes for us continually in the very presence of God. We have shed blood that washes away sins. And we can just go on of the list of the great privileges. We have the priesthood of every believer so that any single believer in Christ is a priest to God. In fact, it says king and priest to God. You know, we reign with him. We can go right to God's very throne room through Christ. And bring our petitions to him. Now, anybody who's dissatisfied with that and concocts some other means that, that they claim is going to get you closer to God than this, I'd say is an idolater. 
diviner. And so what is going on in these conferences and seminars, I, I keep getting these emails and letters about these things, is that they're concocting ways to get close to God besides this. They're dissatisfied with the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. So they come up with a, their own program. They come up with these prophets that visited heaven and talked to the saints and came back and they're going to tell us secrets. All right? Uh, the Rick Joiners of the world and so on and so forth. I'm saying that this is sinful and it's idolatrous and it's a failure of faith. It's literally unbelief because you don't really believe that coming to God in prayer to the throne of grace is adequate. And it's an insult to God. It's an insult to the blood atonement. And so that's going to be my next article. I'm going to keep stirring the pot and see if some of these guys will come out and defend themselves. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I think some of these people sincerely believe what they're doing, and they're the best ones because the deceived person is the best salesman. You know, for example, it's a little easier. You take this Robert Tilton, for example. Remember when he was on TV? Okay. Well, he was obviously in a he was a huckster, and they did a 2020 investigation, and his college roommate told said that they were in college, Tilton and this other guy. And they'd sneak out of the dorm and go into these tent meetings and see these guys work in the crowd. And Tilton came back from one. He says, you know what? I can do that better than that guy. He wasn't even a Christian. He's still doing it. Yeah, he's still And he learned how to be this huckster that could get all these people to give him his money. Well, that guy, most of us can look right at him and see through him. He, you know, that guy's not a yeah, legit. Yeah, well, people, the reason this stuff works, by the way, brothers and sisters, is that humans are superstitious, all right? And we, and we by nature think that there's some holy man on the earth that can get closer to God than we can. We just think that way. Yeah, and so we, we really think that if Oral Roberts went to God for us, it's going to do a lot more good than if we just pray to God. <laughs> and so, uh, because as long as people think that way, these guys are always going to have a marketing scheme. But I think the antidote, the antidote is to show people this in the book of Hebrews. Right here. You can't get any closer to God than you're going to get through Messiah. And you're a priest. You don't need a high priest over you to do this for you. You can go right to God yourself. And any uh, simple, humble Christian praying together with one another or two or three gathered together is as powerful as Benny Hinn, Oral Roberts, and all of these guys added together. In fact, more powerful because some of these guys aren't even legit. They don't go to God at all. They go to the dumpster. I got that video. That, that is a testimony to the value of these And this is how we get close to God. And uh, we're going to, Haman, it's like Haman. Was that all? Have you ever heard anybody say that? So what do you need to do? Well, you know what you need is prayer and Bible study and Christian fellowship. That's how God's going to work in your life. What? They go away like Haman. 
Or not Haman, Naaman. Naaman. Yeah, like Naaman. You're going to go away like Naaman. That's all you got? Well, I'll go down somewhere else. Somebody's got to have something more exciting than that. Is that how God's going to meet me? Nah, I think I'll go to a Benny Hinn meeting. Uh, you know, I'll get slain under the power. Then I'll be close to God. <laughs> and, and, you, and you hear that and say, I'm going to go away. It's not, it's not any good. It's not anything exciting. Well, frankly, God delights. He uses the things that are not to, think, to confound the things that are. God delights to use the, the simple, go wash in the Jordan. That's what God said. He'll heal you. And so, thankfully, uh, Naaman listened to his servant and did what God said. And what we're urging people to do, you know what? It may not sound really like all that much excitement, but do what God said, and he will meet you. Because God cannot lie. He'll change your life. Let's keep studying here. Verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which... No one has officiated at the altar. Of course, this is Melchizedek. Going on to verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. It's obvious that Jesus descended from Judah, so he can't be a Levitical priest, and no person from descended from Judah ever officiated at the altar. It wouldn't have been allowed. They, they were forbidden to. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He can't do this. Yeah, and remember Saul was going to do it too. Yes, Scott. Well, yeah, if Jesus had descended from Levi, then he couldn't be Messiah. Messiah, in fact, let's look this up. Um, Genesis, I'm going to read this one. You might want to all turn to it because it's very important. Genesis 49, 8 through 11. If you want to turn to that. Genesis 49, 8 through 11. Because this is a key prophecy that was given by Israel, Isaac, I mean uh, Jacob, who became Israel by God's, uh, by after wrestling with an angel. <laughs> he gives a prophecy in his blessing of his 12 sons that ultimately becomes uh, absolutely significant. Genesis 49, starting with verse 8. Look at this. Judah, your brother shall praise you. What does Judah mean? Praise. Praise. The The term Jew comes from the term Judah, which means praise. Okay? Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Remember? Um, the, uh, that was what Joseph had seen in his dream. But here it's given to Judah. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. You ever heard of the lion from the tribe of Judah? Here we go. These, these patriarchal narratives come, come back later in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. 
What's the scepter? What's the scepter? Yeah, it's the the, the symbol of royal authority. All right. Um, who's Shiloh? Messiah. Yeah, the Jewish uh, rabbis believe that this was a, a messianic verse, <coughs> and they cited it. Yes. Zechariah. No, I don't have it on my list, so go ahead and look it up. <coughs> let me finish reading about uh, this one first. Genesis, uh, let me read on. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So there's going to be a kingly descendant from Judah to whom the people will give obedience. It says in verse 11, he ties his foal to the vine, his donkey coin to the the colt of the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robe in the bloods of grapes. Justin Martyr used this verse when his dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, he referred to this over and over again to prove that Messiah would die. Okay? And that he said that this was a prophetic reference to the blood that was shed on the cross. That's, that was Justin's claim. And he said because... Um, Trifo would acknowledge that verse 10 was a prophecy about Messiah. And so verse 11, he says, shows that Messiah would die. It's an interesting argument. Okay, what was Zechariah now? There's a king and priest. Wow. I didn't even know about that one. That's awesome. What was the passage? And what? Okay, Zechariah six twelve to thirteen. Add that to your cross reference list. It's awesome, perfect. Um, I had a few more here. Karen, Isaiah eleven one. Keith, Jeremiah twenty three five and six five and six. Um, uh, Carla, Micah five two. And uh, Camp, Revelation twenty two sixteen. We'll read those and then we'll be done here. Okay, the first one was Isaiah 11 and verse 1. There's that branch that Ryan was talking about. Isaiah 11 1. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Yeah, wow. 
So our righteousness comes from this branch of David. And so we see how this promise is narrowed down because in the Old Testament we know it's the seed of the woman. Then it's going to be a Semite, a descendant of Seth. Then it's going to be of the seed of Abraham. Then it's going to be of the seed of David. And so we get very specific pointing forward to ultimately to Jesus Christ. Micah 5 and verse 2 also narrows it down a little bit. Now we know even more about Messiah in the Old Testament. Not only is he going to come from the tribe of Judah, he's going to come from Bethlehem. And he's not going to be just an ordinary person from Bethlehem. He's going to be someone whose goings forth have been from the days of eternity. So now we know, now we're starting to see this virgin birth that here we have Messiah who existed with God from all eternity would be the one born in Bethlehem. Isn't that amazing? (coughs) Wow. I don't know how anybody continues in unbelief if they'd ever studied the Bible. Yes. Oh, Artis. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 was the reference about this branch of David. And Micah 5, 2 was the reference about Bethlehem and one of, from Judah, from Bethlehem, whose goings are from eternity. Wow. <coughs> awesome. And then Revelation twenty two sixteen at the very end of the Bible. So here Messiah calls himself the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I was looking at that one, and it made me think about the fact that analogies in the Bible are flexible. You can't assume because something's used as a metaphor one place, it has to mean the same thing everywhere. Because the word morning star is a reference to the day star or Venus. Venus that you can see on the horizon. It's used in Isaiah 14 to reference to Satan. <coughs> so Satan is, in a sense, the false one who would want to be that, but isn't. And Jesus is the true bright and morning star. So there you go. With a wild branch grafted in, contrary to nature, so don't get caught. But yet God has grafted us in, He's going to keep us. Amen. Don't get smart because I can graft in people when they're forgetting about the Jewish nation again. Amen. I'm going to be talking about that this morning. Our sermons from Matthew 23, 34 to 39, and it includes Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. And I'll show you from that that though Jesus spoke such harsh things about apostate Jewish leadership, there's a note of hope even in the midst of judgment that there's going to be this time when they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that'll be our sermon. Matthew 23. We have a half hour now, time of fellowship, and there's coffee and other goodies over there. So enjoy yourself. Enjoy the fellowship. God bless.